pleasure of storytelling is the entry point for everyone into writing, as well as what propels the writer as they move into different genres. Hi everyone, I'm Brett from Heinemann. Today, we're hearing from author Tom Newkirk about his new book, Literacy's Democratic Roots, a personal tour through eight big ideas. Tom is interviewed by fellow Heinemann author Ralph Fletcher. In this delightful conversation between two old friends, Tom and Ralph discuss the importance of narrative, the resources students bring to any curriculum, and how the marriage of the two is imperative in facing the current challenge to democracy to bring everyone in to make everyone welcome. So, Tom, uh, I have read, I think, all of your professional books, and um, your thinking aligns with me most of the time. So it was fun for me to read your book because it allowed me to re-examine my own ideas about reading and writing and the language arts classroom. So I found myself asking myself questions about what I really believe, and I, I think that's one of the values of your book. There's a couple of great quotes that I wanted to just get your your thoughts about. Of course, you talk about it in your book, but just to get you to expound on them a little bit. Um, I love this quote. The unifying principle for the book comes down to a core belief that as humans we have the great gift, the great evolutionary achievement of speech and story. It's what we do best, and all literacy instruction needs to honor and build on that gift. Well, sometimes I think we treat students like they, they don't bring in a lot, of, a lot of resources, and particularly the notion of story. I mean, that's central, and that's threaded through the whole, the whole book. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And one of my earlier books was Minds Made for Stories, and I think our, our minds are made for stories. So stories are important both in terms of what students should be allowed to do. And in writing the book, I tried to, to, to walk the walk. You know, I tried to have stories be threaded through the book so that I'll maybe introduce a point and then I'll tell a story. So you're going to get a lot of family stories, a lot of Ohio stories that are threaded through this book to kind of personalize and to uh, ground some of the ideas. So I, I think it's, it's, it's what we bring. And, and I think if we get too far away from story, we just lose, lose contact with human reality. So story is, is our home base. Yeah, I read somewhere that story is the mother of all genre. Yeah, I heard that, and I've used that and pretended like I'd, I'd invented that. But I'm sure, it, <laughs> I'm sure it comes from somewhere else. Like I say another part of the book that my, my advisor used to say, his original ideas are those for which he's forgotten the source. And I think that's probably true here. I probably stole that from somebody. But I really think that, that narrative is the mother of all genres, and all, all genres really rely on, on story. So I was also struck by the concept of a permeable curriculum. And the way you talk about it is you say permeability is the openness of the official curriculum that allows some of the unofficial in so that we can use it in the school-based expectation for writing. Mm-hmm. Well, permeability comes from Ann Dyson, who's a researcher who I, I revere. And so I give her all credit for that one. No, no attempt to steal that term or pretend that it's totally mine. But, but I think... I think there's a, a corollary here, corollary here that to, um, to teach students to write, you have to know, know something about what they bring in, mm-hmm. about their loyalties, loyalties, loyalties to popular culture or experiences they've had that have been central to their lives. As an example, I, one of my students, uh, when I was teaching writing, I learned early on that she had blown out her knee when she was a junior or senior in high school, I forget which. And knowing that fact, because she rehabilitated and played Division I college soccer, wow. which is a tremendous achievement. 
that was the achievement of her life. That was the event of her life. Knowing that, I could then design, work with her to design assignments that made sense to her. So her, the research project she did was uh, investigating why women are much more vulnerable to like ACL injuries, which I didn't know. And, and it's partly the, you know, the hip structure, so that it creates more pressure on the knee. And so she had a, tr I think she had a good writing experience, but she had it because I was lucky enough to learn that fact earlier on. So the outside came in, and I could use that, that knowledge to, to construct the, the kind of assignments that she wrote on. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, you don't really say this exactly in the book, but I think that the underlying subtext is that schools may be oblivious to kids' knowledge that they bring in and their histories and all that rich information that could really be part of their learning experience. Yeah, and, and like uh, Don Graves, you know, this uh, task that I'm sure you're familiar with, he would say, okay, take your class and first write down all the names of the students in your class without looking at your roster, you know, maybe in the first or second week. And, and I, when I tried that, there'd be two or three students, I, I couldn't remember their names. Most of them I'd have down, but there'd be two or three students I'd, I really didn't have their names down. That was something to learn. Then he said, okay, in the second column, write something that they, can, they, can, they know or can do, you know, some talent, some interest. And then the third column, say, does that student know that you know that? And I thought that was a tremendous exercise. Because so, once you know that information, then you can use it. You can suggest topics. Because often students come in, as you know, and they say, I don't have anything to write about. Yeah. But of course they do. They just have to have help finding it. And so knowing these facts about them gives us a chance to, to help them find that find that good topic to write about. Yeah. So, Tom, the, the philosophy in your book, the philosophy that you argue for, um, is very child-centric. I mean, uh, that, that, that's the way I read it. Mm -hmm. um, and I resonate with that idea. But I guess I wanted to ask you, like, in a democracy, because that's sort of the overarching um, structure that you look at, the literacy classroom, in a democracy, is it also important to help students move beyond the me to understand the other. Um, in other words, isn't part of what schools are about is to help students widen their circles of reference? Oh, I think absolutely. And that's why I don't think I would say it's child-centric. I would say, because before I was saying that it's essentially an exchange, you know, the students bring in interests, passions, but it doesn't end there. Right. It's, it's really the issue that Dewey had to deal with. Because Dewey, you know, you know People read his work as if it was child-centric, as if it's just basically you're, you're accommodating the interest of the child. And basically, the role of the teacher, you know, as, as he was understood or misunderstood, uh, that the role of the teacher is maybe just to be a facilitator. And I, I remember, like, you know, talking to, to Nancy Atwell and others who, who argued that basically the role of the teacher has to be more than that. The yes. teacher is not just to facilitate the interest of the student and to accommodate the interest of the student. There is a set, such a thing as a curriculum. And you have expectations and you have genres that you want students to, to try out. You want them to learn how to do research. You want them to, you know, craft arguments, you know. Uh, so the thing is that, that you can't teach those things in isolation from the autobiographical interests of the student. It's a, it's a dialectic. It's those things coming together. And the problem is when you have one, one part of that dialectic kind of taking control, you say, okay, here's the format, here's the assignment, here's the topic, write on this. Well, you're maybe ignoring the interest of the student. Or you can say, okay, pick your own topic, you know, write what you think, you know, enjoy the writing, 
And if that's the end of it, then you're really ignoring the curriculum. Yes. So it's how, it's how the two come together. Chapter four, you talk about the writing process, and there's a section about choice. Um, I um, explore this idea in my book, Joyride, the whole issue of choice. And mm-hmm. um, So what do you think? Do you think choice has become an endangered species in the, in the classroom? I think it's probably always been an endangered species. The reason I add, well, mm-hmm. let me just jump back because sure. it seems like with, with Common Core, for example, um, there's – more emphasis on having kids write argument and expository informational writing, less about narrative. Mm-hmm. So it seems like some of the choice for students has been restricted. Yeah, and I think Common Core is so focused on you know preparing students for co- the demands of college and the demands of life, and you know so called. And, and so I think that the abs- the pleasure in writing kind of gets washed out a little bit in, in yes. as I read the Common Core. And the focus on reading is to just read harder and harder texts, Mm -hmm. which I think, you know, in some cases it's good, particularly if you take a hard text and read it as a class and let's work, let's work through in eighth grade, let's work through this op-ed piece in the New York Times. I think, I think that's a great thing to do. So, I mean, I'm totally in favor of some hard, harder texts, but I'm not sure that just giving kids harder and harder stuff is is really the answer in our educational system. So I, I, I think that the common core maybe in a lot of cases took the pleasure out of writing. And if you don't find a way to make writing pleasurable, to make writing meaningful in the moment, Mm -hmm. not just to prepare for the future, in the moment, if you never experience that pleasure, I don't think you're ever going to become a writer. You have to experience the pleasure of writing on something you care about and then the experience of, like, as you're writing finding that you have things to say that you hadn't anticipated that you're going to say, so the writing takes on a life of its own, just as if, as a reader, when you're getting lost in a book, if you've never had that experience, if you've never had that experience, can you become a reader? I, I don't think you can, because I think it's always going to be this skill that you wonder why, what's, what's in it for people. Oh, I really agree. I mean, I think that if students can enjoy reading, for example, they will read at home on their yeah. own. yeah. If they enjoy writing, they'll write on their own. Yeah. If they don't enjoy it, I agree that they're going to look at it as something they have to do in school as little as possible, but they're not going to really yeah. immerse themselves into it. Yeah, and it just makes me mad because it makes me mad because writing is this great thing. It's this great possibility, and when you turn it into something disagreeable, something that where you're you feel like you're just vulnerable and somebody's going to correct your errors, it, it's like you're 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 violating this this activity that, to me, is just has such potential, has such potential for understanding yourself, understanding the world, uh, and understanding your, your capacity as a language user. Can you say something about? I've been thinking a lot about identity uh, yeah. as a reader, but mostly as identity in writing. Like, the, you know, there are certain kids who come to school going back to the idea of the funds of knowledge and. You can see they have certain identities, like I'm somebody who plays soccer, I'm somebody who really knows how to play these video games or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But I think part of what we want to do is we want students to begin to see themselves like I am a writer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, is that a realistic goal? Is is that something that teachers can aspire to in their classrooms? I think you as I think we do aspire to we should as- aspire to it. And I think that's that's been the great contribution of people like Don Murray and Peter Elbow. And Peter Elbow, uh, when he 
collected his essays, called it, Everybody Can Write. So I think that there is the goal to democratize writing. Everybody can find their way in. We can develop invitations, possibilities to invite you in. And I think you've written about it and other people have written about it. A lot of these, lot of these free writes where you, where you just kind of take a topic and just write about it for 15 minutes, then, then share it in the class. And another thing I've done that I talked about in the book is when a student writes a piece of writing, often a lot of it's just okay, you know? I mean, but often there's something in it that's really good, a paragraph, a sentence. Yeah. And one of the things I would do, and I probably didn't do it as much as I should, but I would just stop and read that paragraph as if it's literature, as if I'm reading Shakespeare, as if I'm reading Dickens, to read it to that student and have that student hear it as literature and just say, that's really something. And I think hearing that is a way of saying, okay, you're a writer because just listen to what you just did. You know, you don't need my approval. Just listen, just listen to what you just did. I was, uh, I had the chance to spend some time with Ralph Peterson uh, in, in Queens uh, in some classrooms one time and he would walk around with me and he would like read the kids' writing, and he'd say he'd say to he'd say to me and say to the kids, he says, "That's book talk right there. That's yeah. book, that's book language." Yeah, that's it. That's and, it. And, and, and you know, he was he was impressed and he was excited. Yeah. Um, and and when they could hear that, it's book talk. So it's yeah. not just you saying it, but they can hear it. Right. Yeah. So you know, it's interesting. Um, I think a lot of people who talk about writing, um, I'm going to sort of kind of go meta a little bit here, take a step up. A lot of people who talk about writing, talk about writing as achievement. You know. Um, you know, the NAEP scores, the test scores, uh, adequate yearly progress, all that kind of stuff. I feel like I'm more interested in writing as participation in our democracy. And, you know, I, I, I try to say that, like, whether or not you go to college or grad school or whatever or become a novelist, which most people won't, everybody's going to need writing in their lives in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, so I just wanted to get you to react to that. Is my thinking off track in this regard, and you can tell me if it is, but oh, also, no, no. is this a f false dichotomy between um, achievement and participation? I, I, think, I think that a lot of what gets tested in tests like that, I'm not sure how significant that is in terms of, you know, real-life capabilities. So um, I think often in a testing situation for writing, writing is a hard thing to test, frankly, because, you know, depending on how much knowledge you have about that topic, you know, so, you know, it's hard to find a topic that everybody has equivalent knowledge about. Right. And then you, you're putting somebody in a situation where they're getting no feedback, you know, you're getting, putting somebody in a situation where they have to, they have a t you know, have some kind of time limit that they're writing on. Um, yeah. You can't even talk to somebody while you're writing. You can't look up any facts usually. You know, you can't do almost everything you do when you write. You know, you're stripping all that away, okay? Right. And then you're going to say, okay, this is a measure of how you can write. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm sure better writers do better on it than, you know, weaker writers. But, but, but I, think, I think to have, like, real audiences, you know, for example, uh, uh, Jessica Early has a book, you know, where she looks at, you know, real-life genres, like, you know, the public service announcement and having students write public service announcements where they're actually using that, you know, using that genre to, to do some work in the world, uh, yeah. So, so, uh, so I think the more you can have situations where you're writing for real audiences, for doing real work in the world, I think I think that's thrilling, you know, because mm -hmm. uh, I think sometimes if the teacher's the only person that reads it, or in some of these essay assignments, if some machine can read it, you know, mm -hmm. well, yeah, um, 
you know, that doesn't feel very authentic, but if you can have real audiences for your writing and have situations where, where real people are, are reading it and maybe acting upon it, you know, if you're speaking before, you know, preparing remarks for a school board meeting or something like that, you know, that, that kind of stuff is so important. Yes. So I was intrigued by your chapter about story, um, and as you said, you've written uh, about this before. And one of the things that you say in, in the chapter is that story is one of those uh, I don't know, elements that sort of permeates all good writing. But I guess I want to challenge that idea that I've had, and maybe you have a little bit in the book. Like, I, I just want to ask you, um, is there also value in pointing out distinctions between genres and not just commonalities? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think, uh, you know, that whole idea that not this but that. Yeah, and I think, like, if you're looking, that, that goes back to what I was talking about, this inductive principle of, of reading various genres and then identifying the characteristics of those genres. I'm not saying there's no distinction among genres, and I think mm -hmm. that there are often subtle distinctions about genres. A book report and a book review are different, you know, and a book review in the certain one journal is different than a book review in a, you know, these, right. these distinctions are really important. Um, so, so, um, so I think absolutely. But I think that there are certain principles that all good writing have. And one of the principles is you have to sustain the interest of the reader. Yes. If you're going to have sustained reading, you have to keep the reader moving through what you're writing. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? And I think you have to have some kind of plot. And it doesn't necessarily look like a short story. But there has to be some, some way in which you create expectations or some problem, what Janet Burroughs calls trouble. There's some trouble. So how do you construct writing so that there's, there's movement forward? Well, there's some where there's movement from tension to resolution. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm thinking that's like a story, a story or kind of plot element that all writing has. Now, people can you know, say I'm misusing the word story, but at least it's a plot that keeps you going. Yep. You ain't, there's a problem then you that creates anticipation, and there's some kind of resolution of the problem. That's what keeps us going as readers. So I'm intrigued by this idea of tension or problem and resolution. Mm -hmm. So what would you say is the tension and resolution that you're working toward, working out in this book? I think there's a challenge in democracy of bringing everybody in. That, that that's the promise of democracy, that you walk, that there's no, there's no uh, admissions office in a public school. You come in and you're there, you know, you're admitted, you know. And yeah. so we have to find a way as educators to make everyone welcome. And how, and that, that's a huge challenge. And yeah. we failed in so, so many ways. And one of the things I thought was that each of these eight ideas help students find a place in the curriculum. They invite students in. They say what you bring in is valid, is useful. It might not be English, it might be Spanish, it might be some other language. That can be of use. You have these experiences, that can be of use. You have these loyalties to, to movies or sports, that can be of use. We'll find a way to, to bring you in to this academic world, to this world of learning. All of you, all of you. So that's this huge challenge that, that public education faces. And when I first started the book, I thought, saw all these ideas as just, just interesting, important ideas. And the more I worked on it, I think all of these are democratic ideas. So they're these democratic ideas that can make that being at home in school possible. Mm -hmm. And then I, also I, 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 I call each chapter a journey. 
okay? Because I knew I couldn't be exhausted. You know, 20 pages on the writing process. You know, we spent our lives on that, Ralph, right? But I'm saying, I'm just taking you through this this house, this, 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 you know, maybe and start with the definition. I'm going to walk you through some some ideas and how they've how they've uh, helped me as a teacher. So I'm going to so that, so we're going to walk through this house in 20 pages. And so for me, the idea that is a story. It's it's almost like a journey. I'm walking you through these these rooms, and I've known people who've lived in these rooms. I've known people who built this house, who've recon, who reconstructed this house. Uh, yeah. So I think there's I hope there's a kind of a story feel. To the to each chapter. Okay, I'm your tour guide. We're taking a walk through this house. Um, hope you enjoy it. So, you know, I was thinking about writing this book, um, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, a book that talks about democracy—that's that's a that's a big idea. It's a big. Yeah. And um, writing this book must have either allowed or almost required you to revisit and reaffirm your beliefs about literacy, but also did it give you a chance to reaffirm and reexamine your ideas about democracy. Yeah, and about public schooling and democracy. And, and I think that what's happening now is public schools are just under such attack. And so if you if you imagine a headline, our nation's schools are fill in the blank. It has to be failing if it's a headline, right? You yeah. Know, the, 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 it's just like uh, this, this sense of, of uh, criticism of public schools or loss of faith in public schools. Yeah. And to me, there's something incredibly honorable about the mission of public schools, and I think I think we have to affirm that. And 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 I think often, like patriotism or uh, love of country, often it's co-opted by the right. Yes. And you know the flag, just like often the flag seems to be co-opted by the right. And I wanted to wave the flag. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make the case that these are democratic practices. And to make to affirm kind of the connection of what we have worked so hard in public schools for for our careers and people have you know before us have worked hard, and this connection to democracy and public education because it just seems so under attack now, so I wanted to kind of create my version of patriotism, and at the end of the book, I try to really connect it to my father, who fought in World War two, and I think one of the things he fought for and the Americans fought for. Uh, is freedom and freedom to read. And that was one of the great dividing lines between, you know, the United States and the Allies and the, the Nazis who, who were burning books. Yeah, that last uh, part of the book was really powerful when you talk about your father and the letters that he wrote. Um, I wonder if you could read part of that. Is that possible? Um, the yeah. letter that did, yeah. your dad wrote? Yeah. Yeah, my dad, well, I tell the story like in the war, my dad would, he would be in the, New Guinea and the Philippines, and my mom would send him modern library classics. And so he would be in the jungles of New Guinea reading Proust, you know. And so the books, the Proust would come back to the house after, you know, when, you know, when, when I was a young kid, you'd see these books around with his date, you know, where, when he, you know, what year he read it, what day he wrote it, read it. So, um, and even before the war, um, he was interested in independent reading. So I talk in the book a lot about lineages, you know, you know, ancestors, mentors that came before us. And so my father, he was an orphan, and he grew up in an orphanage and, and ended up teaching in this orphanage. He taught, he taught science. But he had this study hall at the end of the class. He's about 26 years old, and he has a study hall at the end of the day. 
and you know, nobody was doing anything. Like, you know, nothing's changed, right? <laughs> Steady hold. <laughs> the kids are just sitting there. So he decided to create a classroom library and then to encourage kids to read and match them up with books. And then he, he uh, monitored what they, what they read. And so he had some crazy yeah. books. He had Ulysses, which had just been cleared for entry into the country, which was not a big hit with his students. Uh, but Jack London was. And John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men, which had just been published, was. And, he, and in 1940, he wrote this, in 1941, he wrote this article called A Venture into Free Reading, where he describes this reading program, this independent reading program that he created. And, you know, as kids, we read Dad's article. It was the first, the first published thing that he, he'd written. Hmm. And I thought, how uncanny that, that in 1941, as a 26-year-old, he was anticipating the work that we've been so involved with with Nancy Atwell and Penny Kittle and independent reading in the classroom library. Yeah. He certainly hadn't pushed it that far, but he had the germ of that idea. It's beautiful. And so, so he wrote this article, and, and, uh, and I'll, I'll just read the end of it, if, if that's okay. And it's, it's a weird kind of time travel, too, Ralph, because you, know, you always kind of think of your parents as older than you are, yeah. right? But at one time, your, your parents are way younger than we are now. Yeah. So this is, this is my father as a 26-year-old a high school teacher teaching in this orphanage, arguing for what he called free reading. In conclusion, I'd like to say that I believe there's a place for free reading in the high school, a place that provides a class with a supervised study period, a study period relatively free of drill and exercises, a place that possesses a sympathetic supervisor but mostly a place that contains an enlightened teacher who criticizes a book only after having read it, who is slow to condemn any book, who doesn't hold too tightly to the line between fiction and nonfiction. Yes, especially an enlightened teacher, one who can remember that Carnegie made the library public, that teachers need to make it free. Beautiful. Our thanks to Tom and Ralph for their time today. You can order Tom's new book, Literacy's Democratic Roots, at Heinemann.com. You can also learn more about the book, including a sample chapter, and read a transcript from today's podcast at blog.heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.